Welcome to Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And today we're in Systematic Theology 2, discussing the doctrine of salvation still. And you said we only have two more of these? Yeah, we got this one and then Sanctification, which I think we'll do in one. It might turn into two. And then we got to do some real work because we've not completed our Theology 3 syllabus. Well, I pretty much have Holy Spirit done. I've got a ton done on the church. We'll find out exactly how much we got done. <laughs> Anyhow. So uh, last time we talked about repentance and conversion. and We so, also repented of our false teaching. Yeah. Your false teaching. Yep. And is it still out on the correct pronunciation of... Well, you're debating how it's done in Greek. It's like, well, fine. But yeah, we only had one seminary student that goes to our church way in so we're still waiting <laughs> yeah determining abaddon was yours right yeah and you had the midwestern bad 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 um i never knew i picked up a midwestern accent uh, we had been here like two years we went down to uh we were in pennsylvania or virginia something like that heading to our parents house we're at an antique store and we're just talking and some guy's like you from wisconsin i'm like yeah, how do you know? He's like, oh, your accent. I'm like, my accent? He's like, yeah, Wisconsin. Gosh. I think <laughs> I think Midwestern accents are the worst. <laughs> and apparently mine is pretty bad. When I went to Tennessee in uh, high school, um, I was with some friends, and mine was clearly the strongest Midwestern mm-hmm. accent they said. And I'm like, I can't tell. But- I can't either. That's what's so weird. And when I lived in Texas, I started picking up the y'all. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And if I get around Texans... Or Southerners, I start to revert. I kind of am Mr. Chameleon. Yeah. Not in a good way. Yeah. Some Probably of us are just more than others, you know. Um, <laughs> so, so. Yeah, that's one way to look at it, Jerk. <laughs> so, Why don't you just get on with this? <laughs> uh, yeah, so but before we do that one on sanctification, though, today we're going to talk about what we're simply calling true Christianity. And there is still a lot of bad thinking out there as to what it means to be converted. That is what... It, a saved Christian truly is, and therefore what he, he or she is supposed to do, what does that life now look like? And so this will be, I don't know, probably a shorter episode, but we want to address some common errors and then talk about what true saving faith is to be and do. And we, I think we've covered these in one form or another probably now in previous episodes. Well, you know, at some point we're going to just be repeating ourselves. I mean, yeah. we've got how many episodes? Over 100 now. So Yeah, we're approaching 120. I think one of the things that always annoys me is in the effort to try to say something new, you invariably step away. People step away from the text of the scripture. I mean, there's only so much you can say in, in one sense because the Bible is closed. Yeah. You know, and then you got people who keep coming up with new things. I'm like, I just don't think that's there. (laughs) So at Uh, some point we'll start playing reruns, but not yet. (laughs) Sure. Um, is that loud? S- reruns? No, no way. 
Well, we'll probably why why can't we kick out podcast two and just re-release it? What's the rule? Who's who 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 would find us? Lord, well, knows. nobody, nobody. But they could just go and listen to number two. All right. What I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Who cares? Let's talk about true Christianity. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, we're going to touch on this here. So true Christianity. Uh, first of all, we say there are some extremes to be avoided. First one is what, what is known as just easy believism. And this is simply a reduction of the gospel uh, in, in an extreme form, really. It's like any error it's, is caused by taking just a few passages and then exalting them above other passages and thereby ignoring the totality of Scripture. And so there's often the idea of faith as an ascent of the mind to certain truths. That is, you just, you believe certain things, uh, but without having what the reformers called fiducia. Um, and that is that third category. It's notitia, census, and fiducia, yeah. Um, and this is that, that category or that realm in which the spirit works, uh, where there's now a love and a trust in these truths. Um, and this is similar actually to what, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Yeah, if you've heard that phrase before, um, simply put, it presumes upon the grace of God. And that's really what it is. It sees no real need to put away sin or follow the commands of Christ. It's just all under the blood, as some will say. Did you grow up hearing that phrase? It's under the blood? Yeah. In, so, in some ways. Oh, it wasn't I, pushed really hard. Oh, see, I grew up where it was. you were immersed in that constantly. You'd do something, ah, it's under the blood. I was always joked about, but it, it it was fervently held. Were you Nazarene? Is that what you grew up? No, in? that's back in my old old days of uh, independent Bible churches. Oh, okay, just piddly doctrine and stuff. Sure. Um, no, and Nazarene, you're just losing your salvation constantly. Oh, so you're, and you're yeah. going back to get it again. Yeah. Um, well, that that under the blood. You, uh, or just the idea of cheap grace. You'll, I mean, you'll see that either in, I mean, the easy one to point to is many of the Lutheran churches, for instance. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Cost of Discipleship, uh, who coined that phrase, he said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Yeah, and then he contrasted that then with what he called costly grace. And costly grace is what we would just say is biblically speaking, true grace. It, it's picking up on what Jesus said about how you must count the cost if you're to truly follow him. And it will cost you much. In fact, it can be summed up in just this idea of self-denial um, and putting to death self for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Now. Of course, that's not saying that you must do this in order to receive this grace, but it is saying that true saving faith, which results from the grace of God, truly transforms a person's mind, will, heart, desires, goals, so on and so forth. Um, it, it's a life that begins to look radically different than it did before because you're now putting away sin and pursuing a life that looks increasingly, and that's the key word, increasingly, like Jesus. Right. So the Christian life then uh, and, and the, the existence of a Christian is really one of being a follower or a uh, discipler. And I'll try to get in front of my microphone. Um, so Jesus gave this mandate before he ascended. And it was something that's expected to be an ongoing reality in the Christian life. So 
we all know it, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples. And, and that make disciples is the key um, of all the nations, how baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, this is the part that people in easy believism always forget about, uh, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so you see that really being played out in the early church. Uh, in Acts eleven twenty six. it says, and when Barnabas uh, had found him, him being Paul, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And the point here is that the scriptures describe the life of a Christian as something far greater than merely believing at a point in time in your life and then moving on. It's this constant, ever-growing maturing through this process of discipleship. And so A.T. Robertson uh, picks this up in his uh, series on, the wor on word pictures. He says, we accept church members on a profession of trust in Christ. Continuance in the word th through teaching proves the sincerity or insincerity of that profession. It is the asset test. And that's really quite good. That's really where, what we do here at Missio Day. It's if you can make a credible, I mean, every Sunday we say that for the Lord's Supper. Right. If you're able to make a credible profession of faith and love of Christ, you can take, we'll, we'll take you even into membership if you're able to explain the gospel to us. But that doesn't mean that you're definitely saved. Um, it means that you're professing it, but what you do from that point on, we'll then show whether it's true or not. Yeah. Um, and so this gets in that whole thing of carnal Christianity. Um, is It's never thought to be, or it's not ever thought to be thought of as a normative or acceptable lifestyle. Uh, but again, did you grow up with a carnal Christian? Yeah, that one, definitely. Okay, I, I did too. Um, in fact, I remember at the Master Seminary, they showed a video for... Uh, chapel with Howard Hendricks from Dallas. And there, uh, it was all about this. He was sitting on this chair and he's like, this is your heart. And over here is Jesus. And what you want to do is you want to get up off your, the throne and you want to invite Jesus to sit there. And it's the whole idea of the Lordship is yeah, you want to not just him have him savior, you want him to be your Lord too. And there was just this huge outcries like, who authorized this video to be played for ch chapel? And, and, and that poor seminary uh, professor had to do a lot of backpedaling. We were all furious. It's like, this is literally against what our president of our seminary is teaching and, yeah. um, yeah, it was like, uh, but anyhow, to continue in the state of quote unquote carnal Christianity would really give you reasonable uh, cause to challenge one's faith. Um, so like the passage they go to is in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, where Paul says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, the idea of being carnal, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, uh, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? Yeah, so that, that, that fleshly 
idea. It's like, yeah. okay, Paul's talking to Christians and he contrasts here spiritual men with men of the flesh. So you can be a Christian, but you're just a fleshly or yeah, carnal, carnal kind of, yeah. And and I I would, and I don't know what you think, yeah. but I would, oh, you would too. I just reject that whole doctrine, the idea of carnal Christianity as even legitimate. I, I don't think that you can't walk by the flesh, but I am really, really, really unwilling to start saying that's a normative category. Right, where you can live in this for a <laughs> yeah. sustained period of time and somehow. I mean, at be some okay. point, first, uh, Galatians five comes in, right. and those who practice such things, right? So, <laughs> right. Uh, so go yeah. ahead. Yeah, and so many have taken this doctrine, this idea of carnal Christianity, to mean that it's possible to be a Christian, but you're just floating. Um, but but that is not Paul's point. Paul's point is that you're living in disobedience. That <laughs> that's the <laughs> issue, um, and a true Christian will never remain there. And the, the New Testament is clear on that. In fact, the doctrine has developed into this idea, as you were saying. Oh, whom, yeah, yeah, I didn't even realize. Yeah, making Jesus Lord. Uh, you, you said um, in your example there that these are people who recognize Jesus as their Savior, but now they must make him Lord. Yeah. Of he, I, I accepted Jesus a long time ago, but I've just been kind of floating. At some point in my life, I got to get serious and make him Lord. That idea, there, it's just he, he is Lord. You're either in obedience to him or you're in disobedience. And as an aside, this is one of the con common beefs people have about dispensationalism is that they think that if you're a dispensationalist that you buy into this because Ryrie uh, in his study Bible really popularized this and then this really became popular out of Dallas, which is of course a major dispensational Zane school. Hodges. Yeah, Zane yeah. Hodges went way off the uh, reservation with it. So uh, it has absolutely nothing to do with dispensationalism though. Um, and so I know of many people who have ultimately said, well, I'm, I don't think I can buy into dispensationalism, not because they understand the essence of what dispensationalism teaches, but because they think it equals this. And they're like, no. And it's like, no, it has absolutely nothing to do with it. That's an aside, but what you just described is a classic Ryrie statement of, yeah. and that's bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, bad thinking. And in fact, listen to Galatians 5 as to how Paul views those who walk in the flesh, as he says them, that is the, these who, what we would just call live carnally. Uh, he says in 5, 19 through 21, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, um, which is, that's the word pharmakeia. Uh, it's the idea of essentially drug use. Yeah, peyote. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I say you didn't grow up in the West. I did. And peyote was a big deal in some of those Western things about you can't keep us from our Indian worship. And part of that is reaching that altered state through the use of peyote. Yeah. And that's actually exactly what they would do is enter these altered states. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, so then uh, what does he say here also? Enmities, strife, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, enviness, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. So there's more of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice... And that's the idea of abiding and just living in a state of that practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And there are many passages like that throughout the New Testament that we could look at, but that's, our, that's the point here. I think it's sufficiently made. And it's important to understand that 
the New, New Testament just doesn't speak of carnal Christians. I mean, it's just not really a category. It speaks of obedience and disobedience again. And so the one who remains in that or abides in that disobedience proves themselves not to be truly converted. And the one who is in that process, sometimes it's slower for others, but it's nevertheless a process of putting away sin and putting on holiness. They show themselves then to be truly saved and truly therefore possessing the spirit of God. Okay, so then there's another category um, called perfectionism, which is kind of the exact opposite side. Um, This is that temptation to seek to be perfect or sinless on this side of heaven. Um, There are many who place the people of God back actually under the law in an effort to walk holy. Now, it's often done in an unintentional manner, but it's still common. Um, In fact, there are groups who argue for a form of perfectionism. Um, The Nazarenes, their doctrine, it's it's what makes them unique, is uh, that you are entirely sanctified. So they see in different types of sanctification. You're initially sanctified at salvation. uh, Then you're progressively sanctified. Then you are entirely, at that point, you have completely yielded to the Spirit and you no longer sin. And then you are glorified, and in that state, you're um, perfect in the fullest sense. That what what's key to that though is their doctrine of sin. They would also define uh, Wesleyan. I'm I'm going to go back like 40 years here and try to remember the exact quote. But the Wesleyan Arminian definition of sin is any willful uh, disobedience against a known law of God. And only that is sin versus a Calvinistic one, which is whether it's known or unknown, if it's contrary to the person, character of God or his revealed will, it's sin. Mm-hmm. And so I, when I was a member of the Nazarene Church, you hear, you'd see these people and they, were, they would get up and they, there was a time during the meeting where you'd give testimony. And so people would just stand up and give testimony. And when they did, they would talk about how they'd been entirely sanctified, for the last six months and what a blessing it's been. You're like, I know you (laughs) and you're not. Um, But they would claim mistakes because as long as you didn't willfully do it, you accidentally did it. You got accidentally, you got angry and swore and cursed a person. That's okay. That's not sin. So you're still entirely sanctified. So it, like all things, you start to play games with them. Yeah. So anyhow, you want to... Sure. Yeah. So here we have a quote by John Walvoord. Um, Walvoord. You say Walvoord? Yeah. We're not going to ask them for their... <laughs> yeah. Who cares? Uh, I actually met the guy, John okay. Walvoord. Um, yeah. So this comes from his stuff on the Holy Spirit. He says, the doctrine of perfectionism is not always stated in precisely the same terms by its adherents. The definition of Webster's Dictionary is probably fair to all parties which says the doctrine uh, that a state of freedom from sin is attainable in earthly life. Uh, Some perfectionists limit this freedom to willful sin. Others limit the freedom from sin, which they conceive of as attainable in this life, to freedom from known sin, excluding sins of ignorance, either on the ground that they are not sin or that they cannot in any case be included in the realm of perfection. Some believe the sin nature itself is eradicated, an examination of the scriptures will not only sustain the fundamental elements of the doctrine of the sin nature itself, but it will make clear that the doctrine of perfectionism 
is not taught in the Bible at all as it is held by its advocates. So although the reality of salvation is full and complete, uh, that does not mean that sin is not still present within the believer. And we talked a lot about that in our homardiology. Right. Um, and so we've been saved from the penalty of sin and are being saved, therefore, from the power of sin. And then ultimately we'll be saved from the presence of sin, but in the end. Uh, but as most things in the Bible, it is a process. In fact, 1 John 1, 8 through 10 makes it clear that sin will be present with the believer, um, but that God has made provisions for it. And, and there are many passages that speak of the presence of sin in the believer. Again, we covered a lot in our theology of sin, but you want to... Yeah. Well, one of them, though, is one we just taught as we've been taking our church through the book of Philippians during this weird quarantine time. Um, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may, na- I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 3, yeah. uh, 12 through 14. There's another one that uh, talks about growth and maturity uh, as well. There's, we, we, we got a lot of verses that they can look up in the show notes, but we got a couple we can quote here. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, that's the key thing, into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Um, or in Colossians 3.10, that have we have put on the new self, or literally the new man, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So, they're, they're all talking about the idea of having this transformation process decide. Right. Yeah. And every Christian must remember that they are responsible to grow in grace and knowledge. There's never a sense in the scriptures that one can excuse themselves of that remaining sin simply by blaming God's sovereignty as allowing it. Uh, at the same time, the believer must always be cognizant of the fact that they are utterly dependent upon that continuing presence of God and his grace. Um, so for instance, Galatians 3.3, where Paul says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Um, so again, there, there's a an, an onus on the believer there to be in the state of growing, putting off that yeah, sin. Yeah, but through and by the power of the spirit. Right. Not, I'm now going to create this series of rules, and by my own bootstraps, I'm going to now move to the next level. He's like, you were, every everything you are was started by the Spirit. Why would you think now you don't need the, right. yeah. <laughs> that? But a lot of people think that way. Yep. Yeah, and then the, the next thing that we'll then talk about is what then, so if it's not perfectionism or if it's not easy believism, what are we supposed to be doing? <laughs> Um, and so we'll just say, well, discipleship. Uh, discipleship is the reality of the Christian life. And the definitive passage, of course, is going to be Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Uh, you read it earlier, but it's, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Um, now, 
we've talked on this one so many times, but yeah. the, the main command here simply is just make disciples. Um, and then that there's a process in this passage explained um, of how that discipleship happens. And it's but with these, what are called participles. And there's three of them, namely going, baptizing, and teaching. So going shows this is a proactive, continual state of every believer. Baptizing is that initial work of discipleship. Uh, and then teaching is the ongoing work of discipleship. And the scope of this is all the nations, as he says. And of course, this comes with that great promise and provision, uh, which Jesus says, having all authority, which he stated in verse 18, in verse 20, he says, I now will be with you. The implication, meaning his authority through that abiding presence of the Holy Spirit is how this process of discipleship is to be executed. So what is discipleship specifically? Right. So this one comes, we're, we're adapting this out of James, James Garrett's Systematic Theology. Keyword, akotheutheo. Um, it simply means to follow after something or someone. That's the word we talk about. Um, it's figuratively used of discipleship where you're committed to following after another's life and teaching. So uh, some passages. Um, Matthew 19, 21, Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. There's that term. Or in Ma uh, Mark 2, 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Uh, would he have been a disciple if Jesus had commanded him, follow me? And he didn't follow. No. No, right? Uh, it's it's that simple of a thing. But he's going to now follow after him. And, and the concept of that following is um, important. So in John 10, verses 4 and 5, he says, When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of the strangers. And so this following is more than just this casual acquaintance. Never will you find the command to follow as a mere suggestion. It's a command. Rather, it's a total act of following. It is in many ways merely a continuation of what we've talked about, about repentance and faith, uh, where the mind and the life is redirected Christward, and it continues to be so. It's, it's very, very uh, personal. So just listen to the intensity and the radical nature then of what it means to be a disciple, uh, literally follow Jesus. Yeah, because many will say they are follower of Jesus, but then they're going to define that following themselves. And it really looks a lot like not following. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so here's some passages on this. Mark 8.34, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me or follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Uh, Matthew 10.34-38, through 38, do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. That's a promise. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. This is a this is a painful one. 
those two passages were some that John developed in his Gospel According to Jesus, at, where he was attacking that uh, easy believism. But you know, how many times over the years of um, our pastoral experience that we've watched people where they're they're given a choice of following Christ or keeping peace in the home and and what they're trying to do is find some way where they can have both mm-hmm. and it's you can't it doesn't mean you have to be a jerk because then you get the other guys on the other side who destroy almost intentionally their home because they're just this rabbit rabid dog that's just unless that happens then I'm not doing it right they'll yeah. almost think in a twisted I way I mean uh, an unbelieving wife should love the fact that her husband is so different because he now loves her as Christ loves the church. He lays his life down for her. He's, you know, he cares for her. He's tender toward her. All those should be present. But he is also completely committed to following Christ, which means there's non-negotiables that he just won't partake in or he won't make certain decisions anymore and say, well, these things are, I can tolerate these things um, because I don't want to lose my wife. It's like, no, you, you, if the Bible forbids it or commands it, you have to obey those things. At the same time, you don't be that jerk of a husband and then say, well, you know, it's the gospel. It's like, no, it was because you're a jerk. Mm-hmm. Um, anyhow. Yeah. So the next one then is discipleship is learning. Um, and the reason for that is the primary word used is methetes, um, which I mean, literally means to be a pupil or an apprentice. Uh, the, the the life of true discipleship is constantly to be studying and learning from their master. And so the believer is to be studying our Lord and his word. And again, that Matthew 28 passage, uh, how are you making a disciple? By teaching them, teaching them what? Teaching them to observe, that is to keep and do all of my commands. Well, I think about how Paul uses himself as an example to the Philippians, you know, follow my example. And he tells the Corinthians the same thing. He says, you know, follow me as I follow Christ. Um, I think in our, in our nation, because we don't have apprentice really in most situations, um, you know, it used to be in the old days that you would you wanted to be a woodworker, well, then you would apprentice yourself out to a master woodworker. And at first, all you're going to do is like sharpen his chisels. And you're going to do it until you don't even want to look at a chisel anymore. But you can make sharp chisels because you're going to get yelled at a lot. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't matter. You're there. You're apprenticed to him. And so whatever he does, you follow him and you do it and you're watching him, watch him. And the whole idea is that there comes a point where you then become a master woodworker yourself mm-hmm. and then you gather people. And because we don't do that in America, I think a critical life picture, I mean, it's just lost. We don't know what that looks like. Um, I, th- I think a lot of pastors do untold harm because they just won't gather men around them, young or old alike, and just let them be with them. Yeah. You know, I've got, I've got a young guy right now I'm, I'm meeting with and you know, he's only 15 or 16, you know, but I'm, I'm giving him time. Just let's, and I'm letting him watch me. I'm letting them see, you know, yeah. it's, it's important that they understand that, you know, inviting people into your home. Like, you know, you had that one couple that were, uh, had never been in a white person's home before, you know, that speaks volumes when they can sit there and watch how a home functions that, they've never seen before. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, yeah. yeah. Uh, another uh, 
aspect of this discipleship then is there is discipline involved. Um, we won't quote the passages, but we'll uh, make reference to them. In Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, it talks about how we're to live under the yoke of our Christ, of our Lord, rather. Uh, in John eight thirty one, we're to continue in Christ's word. Um, in John 15, 8, we are to bear much fruit. In Matthew 18, 15 through 17, we are actually accountable to one another. Uh, in Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, we're accountable to our Lord. And so there's this discipline aspect of that we're supposed to be growing and under this discipline of learning. Um, and then you have discipleship as a cross-bearer. And we'll just read this passage. It's in Matthew 10, 21 to 25. He says, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them, this is shocking, cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of the household? It is just a reality. You're going to take up the cross and follow him. And so we should, Paul says, we shouldn't be shocked. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, anyone who desires, he says in Second Timothy, anyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus, he that says will be persecuted. And, and yet how often do you and I find ourselves talking to people and they're shocked that they're being persecuted? And it's like, and, uh, and count the cost. That's what he's meaning there. Well, and whenever I'm evangelizing anybody, as I, they're starting to say, I believe this, I believe this, instead of me saying, let's get you baptized, I almost invariably say, you sure? I mean, do you right. understand? And we, we talk at length, I mean, sometimes over a period of weeks, do you understand what you're, you're saying? Because there's no going back here. There's no, you know, straddling. It's you, you're literally going to a different Lord in a different way and a different hope. And it's, it's radical. Yeah. So there's a lot here. Um, and, and the basic point that we want to make is that the Christian life can never be reduced merely to, I made a profession or I stated a prayer. Uh, the Christian is always moving, always changing and growing and conforming, uh, in, into something. And specifically that something is the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, as we said, the Bible is clear that that doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean process. We are always in the process of growing up into that holiness, if you will. And so a person who is not is, we would say only moving backwards. There's yeah. no like stagnation or this neutral yeah. zone that you can just exist carnally. Or, or tread water or something, right? Right. Um, and ultimately, if they, they do not repent and start becoming like the person of Jesus, it should be a warning to them. It should be a warning sign that very potentially they're not truly converted. Um, and so since the genuine believer is always in the process of becoming more like Christ, um, well, it's to that topic that next time we'll turn, Lord willing, which is that very important doctrine of sanctification. But until then, make sure to tune in, join this conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts on um, everything we've talked about here. And don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.
until a friend. Mm-hmm.